Do you read me, Hal? Do you read me, Hal? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Hello, Hal, do you read me? Do you read me, Hal? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. In 1968, Stanley Kubrick released 2001 A Space Odyssey, a film that would fundamentally define and subsequently redefine the genre of science fiction while revitalizing the movie effects industry. 2001 would not see its equal until 20th Century Fox, Dan O'Bannon, and Ridley Scott released Alien in 1979. Alien, like 2001, would change the game for the space horror genre. A more serious affair than films like Close Encounters of the Third Kind in Star Wars, Alien arrived like a meteorite, showcasing undiscovered worlds and atmospheres the likes of which has not been achieved since, despite its many sequels and prequels. In this new miniseries, we will discuss why Alien was and continues to be the litmus test, not just for science fiction and monster films, but for horror as well. Huge. I mean, it's like a man. It, it's big. Kane's son. You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Just tell me one thing, Burke. You're going out there to destroy them, right? Not to study. Not to bring back. But to wipe them out. That's the plan. You have my word on it. All right, I'm in. <laughs> Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Christian Motzka. And we are joined today by a special guest, Adam Ezekiel. Welcome back to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Our pleasure. Adam is on the show today because Adam pitched us a show or a concept for a show about essentially how Alien changed the game for the genre, the sci-fi horror genre. And I thought it was a really great idea. Alien is a film that I feel like sets itself apart even within the canonical three films, but Certainly, we can talk, say, five films. I, I'm not including Resurrection because it's just its own separate thing. Um, but I feel like every time I watch Alien, I'm not even, I'm watching a film that's so different from the rest. And Adam pitched this idea to talk about why that is, why Alien stands out so much, not just within its its own series, its own saga, but within the genre. It redefined the genre, much like Blade Runner redefined the genre afterwards uh, in, in a different way. And uh, so, again, we've been talking and putting our heads together and talking about how we're going to do this. So tonight or today, whenever you're listening to this episode, this is essentially act one. And we're going to kind of get into what the cinema space was like before Alien. And then we're going to talk about Alien and kind of post Alien. like, And then maybe on to we'll talk briefly about what's going to come next in terms of alien Romulus. And that might be the third episode. We'll see how this goes. Definitely a couple of episodes. So 
Welcome to the show, everyone, and thanks for listening. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. I don't know what you're talking about, Hal. It's so nice to be back and so nice to see Adam again. And it's also so nice to be able to proudly announce that we have a uh, veritable buttload of new patrons to announce tonight. So I'm going to go ahead and do that. That's a gross way to put it. Um, Let's go back to August for a second here uh, with Stanislav Sin, Ralph Feldmeyer, Ryan Creasy, Auto Named, Gabriel Sanchez, Gareth Ryan, Alfredo Ramirez, Dave Krausick, and Kyle Baker. Um, thank you to everybody who joined. That was awesome. We, we got a nice big uptick there in the last two months, and it's amazing. Uh, if you want to join them, go to perfectorganism.com slash support or just uh, go you know, on Patreon and do uh, patreon.com slash perfectorganism. We have The Hive, which is dropping left and right now, we, which is really cool, exploring expanded universe content. We just recorded an episode today on John Arcudi and, uh, and Simon Bisley's seminal, bizarre I don't know if it's seminal, but it's definitely bizarre. Uh, short from 1991 called Aliens Reapers. Uh, we're doing a lot of very nerdy deep dives into some expanded universe content there. And you can only hear that on Patreon, in addition to ongoing frame rate, sublime noise, and other content that we're going to keep going in the interim, and even some cool Blade Runner stuff too. So if you want to join, please do. And without further ado, Adam, you want to kind of take us through a little bit of where this idea came from and why you pitched it? My business is all like surrounded around uh you know alien and the 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 costumes but i also there's something i think about every single day for a few hours at least and we were i was talking with jamie uh a while ago and i was thinking about actually what what actually was the the germ of this was uh i'm also um really into uh classical music and a few years ago in toronto i went to a a series of uh, uh, of concerts about kind of a, a a what makes it great about uh, uh, like a, a piece and orchestra the the conductor and the conductor would stop every you know every every once in a while and explain to the audience why a certain piece is what makes it great why is it so monumental and you know the history of classical music and that took me to alien and to thinking about what are the building blocks of what made this film stand out in the scene up until today the reason why you know we're even talking about it you know almost 45 years later and i really got thinking about what are like the fundamental aspects of or reasons that existed back there at, at the time that came together in this magical way? That's what I really think about it, uh, and uh, and made this this film so exceptional. And I really dug into like the nitty gritty details of of different aspects. We're gonna get into you know some of them, uh, you know, either today or, or in one of the other. Uh, you know, act two or three. Yeah, but that's the general premise of before I sat down and started writing down all these uh, these notes. That's awesome. Before we get into this, the question I have for all of you, mm-hmm. and certainly for myself, is how old were you or what, at what point in your life did you really start taking science fiction 
as a cinema genre seriously. And I don't mean like you, you know, you're like, okay, I'm going to obviously not something literal, but that moment when you're like, you know what, this, this genre speaks to me for a, a reasons that a comedy film would not like, when did science fiction really uh, take root in your life? And what, what, what film was that? It might not have been alien. Maybe Adam, for you, it was alien, but I'm curious about that journey for all of us. For me personally, um, I, I, you know, when I was, I mean, I saw Alien when I was nine years old to my grandparents' place. Uh, I'm not sure how I was allowed to see it, but I did. And to be honest, it wasn't my my number one film. Star Wars was for a very long while, uh, and only when I matured. Mentally, I think in my 30s, I started seeing Alien in a different light, in a way more complex and advanced light. Uh, I mean, obviously, it's, you know, had a huge impact on my life. Just, uh, I guess, fandom surrounding this film. And it's just something that I, I, I think about a lot. Uh, and uh, the more, like, every time I watch this film, when I research a certain aspect of of the, the costumes or any other like like piece that I'm working on replicating, and I watch it again looking for specific details, I still notice details that I didn't that I have not no, noticed before. Uh, it's just yeah, it's really it's mind blowing when thinking about it. Like the the the, the levels of uh, of of detail, just even superficial detail, but also plot details, things about the characters that I didn't know, kind of like little minute um, little things that, that they do or that exist in that frame, which is really incredible. I grew up on uh, reruns of Doctor Who and the original Star Trek. And then when Star Trek Next Generation began in, I believe, 89, that was a huge magnet i was just was drawn to that world so it wasn't movies but you know each week being presented with a fictional world in a, in a science fiction setting just that was it i was all done with with drama with comedy before that i loved mash <laughs> and i remember being a little kid and wanting getting um irritated that they wouldn't go back to the surgery because i wanted to see the blood so that was a, a clue that uh, maybe i was a little warped but anyway so for me, that the the touch point for science fiction was actually um, Star Trek: Next Generation specifically, and from there, I I expanded out. But I really feel like this would have been, um, you know, like age ten to fourteen, and that's when I also discovered Blade Runner and the Alien movies and things like that. Um, but I think the ability to pose a question that actually relates to the real world put it in a different place or a different context so that people can look at it in a new way. I, I've always appreciated that. And that's something that science fiction does very, very well. The age range is interesting because I was going to say 14 was the year that I had my like breakthrough a little bit. 
I, science, science fiction has been my favorite film genre since like I started watching movies as a baby. You know, like I've, I've always loved sci-fi and I've been into it. Um, and I, as we you know talked about many times, I, I first saw Alien when I was eight, and that was you know I just watched the Alien movies continuously, you know, for the rest of my life. But uh, it wasn't until I was about fourteen years old watching Alien Three for the upteenth time when something about Alien Three hit me in a different way. And I don't know, it was probably just developmentally where I was, or maybe maybe it was because I was kind of going through some social issues at school at that point where I kind of had lost my friend group a little bit and felt unmoored and was going through puberty and felt kind of out of my body and out of place and awkward. And something about the darkness in that movie spoke to me differently and it made me reevaluate a little bit of what maybe had been drawing me to the other films in the trilogy by that point as well. And I remember after that, you know, watching Alien again and feeling like I was not, like, feeling like I had not seen it before because I was looking at it differently. And looking at Ripley's arc in particular and what she endured and what that says about her and about us and about what humans can do in extraordinary circumstances, like something about that just like clicked for me. And there's been no like looking back ever since. But sometimes I try to put myself in the headspace that I was in when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13 years old watching these movies a lot. And that is the headspace where like I revisit sometimes when I want like nostalgia. Like, you know, we have a VCR set up in our basement and sometimes I'll put on VHS tapes of aliens, you know, and sit down there with the kids and I'll have like a totally just like nostalgic brain disconnected experience. And that's beautiful and I love it. And I'm glad that I still have a part of me that can watch quote unquote serious science fiction like that like just like a journey back into a, a, sim a simpler time in my life but the enduring aspect of the alien saga that lives with me is that aspect that unlocked when i was an early teenager and at a difficult point in my personal life and realizing things about human nature because of a film and i think that's um kind of why i've been hooked on it ever since what about you jamie some of my earliest memories of watching sci-fi films started in 1872 no <laughs> um, no, it was with watching like the forbidden planet when I was a real small child. And I remember watching it, not understanding what I was seeing, seeing these people, you know, the effects were really cheap. Um, but at the time they were probably somewhat state of the art. Yeah. Just being fascinated by what was happening that Robbie, the robot and just the whole world. And that the fact that there was this thing that was keeping that when, uh, the human on the planet got angry. This thing got angry too. Like I, I remember trying to understand what exactly was happening and then watching the original, um, uh, the day the earth stood still. I remember watching the original day the earth stood. I remember again, being fascinated by it. Not really sure why, but there was, there was a bit of a reverence to that film. And when the, the door opens up and the humanoid comes out and the robot comes out and there's this whole spiel about, kind of where humanity is going and where humanity is. And I remember, again, hearing that, but not really fully understanding what they were talking about, but being engrossed by it. And then, much like Christian, as I got older, I would watch Star Trek, the original Star Trek, and then The Next Generation. And then I remember seeing films like Disney's The Black Hole, and it's a very serious sci-fi film. It's kind of cheesy and cheap in some parts, but it's for the most part, it's a serious film. And its I don't know if you would call it a kid's film or what, um, it's probably, I don't know if you guys have seen Something Wicked This Way Comes, another Disney film in the early 80s. Um, it's a Disney film, but it's really dark and really scary and strange. It's one of the strangest Disney films I've ever seen. This is back when Disney was taking risks and Disney wasn't as safe as they are now. Um, but those films were really haunting me in a way. And I've always been uh, 
attracted to the supernatural, as you guys know, Dark Crystal and films like that, that just kind of take me to another world. And then I, I honestly, I think the film that sat me upright was Blade Runner first. Because I'd seen Aliens and I'd seen Star Wars, but that was like a, a rousing good time. It wasn't like wasn't like a meditative experience. It was like, yeah, let's go have fun. Let's go watch Star Wars. Let's go watch Jedi or Empire or whatever. But then when I saw Blade Runner, and I think at about 14 or 15, I, I knew that this film was asking me questions. And I said, okay, what's going on here? And then a few years earlier, as everyone knows, my father had uh, introduced me to Aliens. And I didn't know what I was watching at the time. I was too young. I was 10, 10 or 12, whatever. Um, but as I aged, as I got older, I was like, okay, there's something bigger in these in this genre that's calling me, that's calling my name. And after I really saw Blade Runner and then I bought the score for Blade Runner, then eventually I would watch Alien. And But Blade Runner really was the film that made me kind of retreat into myself like, well, what, what is this actually about? And what, what's going on inside me that it's speaking to me? So that's kind of my entryway into the genre. I am leaving soon, and you will forgive me if I speak bluntly. The universe grows smaller every day, and the threat of aggression by any group, anywhere, can no longer be tolerated. There must be security for all, or no one is secure. We might be recording for the wrong podcast here, but I 100% I agree. Seeing Blade Runner, even though it was on a shitty, you know, uh, formatted for your TV, VHS with the, the god-awful narration. Um, I was so taken with that movie, and I tried to find the score, and the only score that was available was the the awful Philharmonic Orchestra, you know, inspired by, or whatever that crap was, on, on audio cassette. I just couldn't get to the experience. You know, like, it, there was all these barriers to get to Blade Runner, in a way. And I, I kept trying. I kept going back to Blade Runner. And the only other film that I can think of uh, that hit me like that was the 1953 version of War of the Worlds. And like I was saying earlier, how sci-fi can recontextualize an idea, the idea of something attacking us, of attacking America, was very, very alarming for me as a child and so unique. It was way before Independence Day and you know all those kinds of things. Um, and, and years later, going and actually reading the novel and discovering what the original story was, and it, but it was still that idea of the, the British empire being attacked, the British empire being destroyed and that, that uh, social fear put into a science fiction story. The uh, foreign invader theme. And yeah, we, we mentioned uh, 2001 in the beginning. And I think this is kind of also connects it into, to, to alien, the whole theme in, in science fiction of, of, of the unknown, uh, there's a famous uh, Lovecraft quote about that the greatest uh, what was it that the uh, I wrote it down here uh, the oldest and strongest emotion of mankind is fear and the oldest and strongest kind of fear is fear of the unknown 2001 plays to this perfectly and I think feel that you know Alien took it to a different to another level differently uh, the whole you know the, the creature is completely alien, foreign, unknown. At the time, it was absolutely 
no one has ever seen, you know, uh, uh, Ridley Scott commented, I think it was the, the commentary that he was looking for something that was really, truly foreign and alien. And he has, no one has, I mean, H.R. Giga was known in his circle, but it, he wasn't known like on the world stage at the time. And this really played really well for the film. Um, and the whole theme of the, you know, the foreign, the unknown, uh, a theme that I really liked. He also commented, I watched the, uh, the, the commentary again just before uh, yesterday. And I also mentioned this to, to Jamie a few days ago about um, Jaws and the shark. So Spielberg wanted to show the shark more, but it just didn't work. So the shark kept breaking down, so he couldn't show anymore. And it actually worked to his advantage that the shark is hardly seen. That adds to the to to that fear of this unknown, the abyss, the the void, what's lurking in the void. And Ridley also commented on that in the commentary about doing that on purpose, not showing the alien. The creature on purpose a lot minimal minimal uh in order to play on those fears of the audience which is done brilliantly so this is kind of a, a, a an aspect of from jaws that was he wanted to show more but he couldn't to this is what we should do like he understood what made the what enhanced the fear aspect in jaws and took that into alien in a beautiful way i think Absolutely. And I think that's a great segue to some degree where we have the genre of sci-fi um, a little bit before and then, of course, a little bit after 2001. And what did we have before 2001? We had films like The Forbidden Planet. We had films like um, The Day the Earth Stood Still, Them, a lot of even earlier versions of Invasions of the Body Snatchers where there was questions being asked by writers and studios, but they weren't being told in very... Uh, telling ways, even back in, during that time, in terms of effects and the movies that they were making, they were ridiculed even back at that time because the effects, like if you've seen them, um, you see these big, huge, huge ants and they they look like, you know, paper mache, big creatures, and they're kind of ridiculous looking. And even critics at that time thought so. They thought this is, we understand the concept, but this is ridiculous. I mean, that's not their words, but it was essentially, they were like, okay, yeah, we see what you're going for. There's this sci-fi genre that no one's really taken seriously. And there was no exploration to some degree, except for maybe The Forbidden Planet, which is a journey into the unknown. But it was so familiar in some ways and also sort of cheesy in a way in terms of the effects, even though Forbidden Planet was pushing the envelope with effects at the time. Um, it was still this almost very Star Trek and Star Trek found some inspiration from Forbidden Planet, by the way, as did um, Hints of Alien. Uh, really, Scott had talked about Forbidden Planet before in commentaries and interviews. Um, but there was nothing really like there to have audiences take the genre seriously or to have those questions that sci-fi asks so wonderfully taken seriously. And then you have someone like Stanley Kubrick come in and say, okay, I want to ask these questions seriously. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to create a world that you take seriously, because if we can't take the world seriously, you're not going to take the question seriously either. I mean, world building is so important with science fiction. Um, as an aside, I went and saw the creator last week and it, it wasn't this amazing film. It was really good. And I really enjoyed it. But what really sold it for me was the world building. 
So when they're asking those questions within that within that space, I'm believing it because they've done their work. And I think as we get to Alien eventually, the questions Alien asks and the atmosphere Alien asks works because they did their research to ask those questions. So then moving into 2001, you have a film that no one's ever seen before, not, not even just in terms of story, but it broke every mold possible. I mean, and of course, historically, a lot of work went into it. It went over budget. They're trying to figure out the effects as they went. Um, it was frustrating for Stanley Kubrick. But what birthed was this film that has continued to define the genre and in some ways redefine it over and over and over. And who do you hear Denis Villeneuve talk about? He talks about Stanley Kubrick's 2001. Ridley Scott continues to talk about Stanley Kubrick's 2001. And so that film really, it was like a, a seismic event within the genre. And to your point, Adam, in terms of like this threat that's hidden, it's very much like that. Like Kubrick used, even though we see these, the, uh, what I want to call them obelisk. What's that thing called again? The monolith. The monolith. Yes. We see this thing, but it's also terrifying because it's showing we're seeing something we're not seeing. Like we're seeing this monolith, but what else is it bringing? What else is behind it? And I'm not talking physically, but like, what is behind this? What does this thing herald with it? And we don't know, but Kubrick plays in that sandbox for almost the entire length of the film until um, Frank goes out and whatever happens to him happens. But again, it was just one of those very genre defining films that I, you know, I just recently saw it at the Alamo draft house about three weeks ago. And it, that was my first time on the, the big screen. And it was really amazing. But it wasn't just really amazing. It wasn't just in there. I wasn't just in the theater thinking, oh, this is really amazing. I was, it was like a religious experience. It was something where I was sitting there thinking, how in the hell did they do this? That sequence when the ship is landing on the moon and the, and the thing opens up and then it's red, you know, the scene where it's like red. And it's, I, I, I know how they did it, but I still don't know how they did it. Like, I, this film is, how is it? old that film is 50 54 years old something like that um 53 years old and i'm watching this film in complete awe about how they did it and the only other film that makes me think that within 15 20 years of that time is alien how often the crow technicians have ridden in this little vehicle but now dr Morbius. Prepare your minds for a new scale of physical scientific values, gentlemen. You think about how that's in the theater, Star Trek is on television, right? And we're talking one decade later, Ridley Scott wants to make a film and, and he's got that pressure on his shoulders. It'd be like if Prometheus had that impact on us, or I don't, I don't think that Fede Alvarez is thinking about Prometheus at all, but because it's... It just doesn't have the same gravitas. Nothing else seems to. So when you have 2001 on one hand and Texas Chainsaw Massacre on the other of these, he wanted to combine the 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 impact it could have on the audience of these two different genres. And so that's, that's where we're at in 1977 and 78 as they're gearing up to make this movie. 2001 is right in the, in the rearview mirror, you know, we look at it now and it, it feels like there could never have been a time without 2001. But at that time, it was absolutely the the benchmark. He had to try to at least reach that level. And it's interesting to see where 
his influence is clear and he pays homage to it. And then there's places where he couldn't touch it. And so there, there are cheats. Like when an Astromo is moving through the, the stars, after the ship has passed, there's no stars anymore. They just, they couldn't do the effect. And, and we let it go. Nobody seems to care, but uh, I'm sure it, it eats at Ridley Scott that he wasn't able to do something that, that Stanley Kubrick had done. I've got a very nice story about Sonny. I'd finished Blade Runner and it was a disaster. And my uh, investors were giving me a really hard time. Said, we, how can you, you can't end the film with this, picking up a piece of origami and looking at the girl walking in the elevator, nodding and bingo, that's it. I said, it's called a film noir. They said, what's a film noir? So that was a big not problem. And he said, you, we have to test this with an uplifting ending. Why do we always want uplifting ending? Uplifting ending where they will go off into the wilderness together. So if they go off into a beautiful wilderness, why do they live in this dystopian environment? All right, I'll do it. So by then I talked to Stanley a few times. I called him up and said, listen, I know you shot the hell out of wherever it was in The Shining. I know you've got four and a half months of helicopter stuff there because you don't want to go in the air. Can I have some of the stuff because it'll suit me fine? The next act is 17 hours of helicopter footage. Wow. Stanley. So the end of the film in Blade Runner is that Stanley Kubrick's no. footage wow. going into... That's incredible. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but he, he said... You didn't know that. No, no, but he said, wait a minute. You got a vehicle? I said, yeah. What's it? It's long. Oh, shit. Every shot I've got has got a Volkswagen in it. Then he went. Then he went. Oh, what are you shoot? I said, Animal Warfield. Ah, Jolly Goods go, new project, man. It'll look oblong. You'll be fine. <laughs> then, uh, a day later, he called me and said, it's Stanley. I went, what? He said, one other thing. I know you're not through my footage right now. If you use anything that I use, you can't have it. Got it? I went, okay, boom. That was it. That was Kubrick. Uh, and I think just to rewind for a second to get into the 2001 conversation again, I think it's important to consider why 2001 and Alien both represent paradigmatic shifts in science fiction. Like, why are they are considered landmarks, right? And I think it's because they are signifiers of changes in society and more specifically changes in what we're afraid of. Okay. So it's impossible. I, I would argue that science fiction as a film genre didn't start until the fifties. I know that there are films earlier than that, that deal with space travel and fantastical exploration. And we have films from the silent era from the thirties, you know, for example, that do that. But to me, science fiction as a genre begins in the 1950s, or at least post-World War II, and it begins with what we call the golden age right, of science fiction, which is a parallel movement in literature and also in films. And so in films, what you have is like a society that has just unleashed an atomic weapon on the world and is dealing with what that signifies, right? Like society was terrified that they had the apocalypse in their pocket but in addition to that, had scientific knowledge that would allow them to split atoms. Like that's that's a huge deal for a society to reckon with. And so we go out of World War II into this Cold War era, which is defined by two things. The presence, the omnipresence of nuclear arsenals around superpowers, right? And this paranoia about communism infiltrating America, right? That was like something that every, every American in the 1950s was obsessed with this idea. And you were either obsessed with not being caught for being, you know, quote unquote communist, or you were obsessed with hunting them down. So most of the films that come out in science fiction are sometimes thinly and sometimes not even thinly veiled 
explorations of these two concepts, right? Invasion of the Body Snatchers famously is very much a McCarthyist, uh, you know, exploration. Um, you know, you have things like um, the, the day the earth stood still, for example, dealing with what would happen at the end, the end times. Like, like, how do you reckon with what if the aliens that find us are just as dangerous as we have become ourselves, right? So a lot of the science fiction that comes out in the 50s really addresses those questions. And I agree with you, Jamie, that it does so for the most part in ways that are kind of hackneyed and haven't aged particularly well. You know, and it's not like just the Ed Wood films, but the great films as well, the films that are considered landmarks, films like Godzilla, right, which which is one of my favorite movies of all time. It's it's definitely a person wearing a suit. It's shot beautifully, and it's and it's you know a really haunting. I mean, I, I think the original Godzilla is a horror movie. Personally, I think it's like one of the most beautifully evocative horror statements I've ever seen. Um, of course, dealing with you know the presence of nuclear weaponry and what that would mean to the world. But at the end of the day, it's a genre film, right? So the birth of like quote unquote genre filmmaking to me really begins in the 1950s. And is disrupted by the presence of 2001: A Space Odyssey, which is a such a mature artistic statement that it commands attention. But beyond that, also signifies that we're now afraid of something else. So what what you look at when it was made, right in the late 1960s, the U.S. space program was full steam ahead. It was what it was. I mean, it's it's still to this day the most impressive technological achievement in the history of humankind. I, I think you know, unless you're looking back at like ancient societies and things. But the idea of coalescing that much money and that much talent and that much scientific advancement into like a seven year period is an astonishing achievement. And what we find in this era of space exploration is that the scary thing wasn't actually what happens if the other guys get there first. The scary thing is how lonely it is, right? You talk, you listen to all the early Apollo astronauts. That's like the thing that they're obsessed with, and indeed, like even on you know the the like the Apollo missions that make it to the moon, that's something that like th there's always a dark period where the astronauts, like the one that's still with the lander, is orbiting the back of the moon and they lose radio transmission, and that's a, a, a universal theme is how scary that is. So, in science fiction, all of a sudden we become scared about like what if space is not like exciting and it's not a place we can escape to what if it's actually not for us right like what if this world that we've now destroyed partially is it right that's i think really interesting so 2001 asks that question right 2001 takes all of these things that we're used to seeing in you know star trek and in other more fantastical science fiction you know products and it gives us that. It gives us a brightly lit film with incredible technology and beautiful music and all these wonderful things. But it's so lonely and it's so haunting and it's so it's so strangely empty. There's this wonderful, I think part of why we all talk about it like a religious experience is because there's almost this religiosity to the way that it's made. It feels like you're like sitting in a church and you're the only one there watching this, this like ancient artifact. There's something really powerful about that. And it's powerful because of how beautifully it's made, but it's also powerful because it says, now that's what we're afraid of. And then what you see after 2001, of course, is the pendulum shifts the other way, and we get this explosion of very hopeful science fiction culminating in 1977 when Star Wars comes out. And that becomes like, that's what science fiction is going to be now. It's going to be swashbuckling, exciting, dynamic. We're going to use all of the technological advancements that 2001 brought, but we're going to use them to make you know fantastical explorations of like the optimism of late 1970s capitalistic society, where like we can you know we're okay, we didn't kill each other yet, like we're going to do great. And then Alien comes in and hits the pendulum back the other direction again, um, 
and uses all of these achievements and these advances that we've made, not just in science fiction, but in 1970s filmmaking, which is something we need to talk about also. And it brings them together for the first time in a really evocative way. The last thing I'll say before I shut up on this is I really hope that we don't get caught in this trap of talking about Alien like it's only a science fiction movie because it is a horror film as well, of course. And I think it represents just as significant a leap forward in terms of horror filmmaking as it does in terms of science fiction filmmaking. Adam, of course, has brought up Jaws, which you know was talked about quite a bit by the filmmakers as sort of a benchmark and was such a hugely important film. Both of these movies display almost every single hallmark of a traditional slasher movie, right? There's even a final girl in Alien, quote unquote. There, you know, there's a silent, you know, antagonist who is unstoppable. You're trapped in a house with them. All of these things that would go on to then define horror filmmaking for the next 18 years or so after this came out. A lot of that is latent within Alien down to the trope level. It's like these things that become a blueprint for other movies to come. And that's because I think of advances in 1970s filmmaking, especially in things like Jalo filmmaking that then Ridley Scott and Dan O'Bannon and Giger and everyone else who made that incredible film put together and scared audiences in a new way and revealed to them what they were actually afraid of, which wasn't necessarily how lonely space is, but what's waiting out there for us and what does that say about us? All right. What is it? Let's get out of here. We've got this far, we must go on. We have to go on. As you were talking, I, I was really thinking about the questions that science fiction of the 50s asks. And largely it was invasion of the body snatchers, you know, being being um replaced by some something that looks like you but is not you um the day the earth stood still something arriving on earth um them things in the desert because of uh because of bombing in the desert then the radio the radioactivity then makes regular creatures huge creatures and you also have films like the fly um the original fly which was fantastic Fantastic film. I can't recommend it highly enough. It is very creepy in its own way, but it's asking questions kind of about, well, what are we doing with science? What is science doing? When Stanley Kubrick comes on the scene, he's probably asking, to your point, Patrick, one of the scariest questions. Are we alone? Are we alone in the universe? And what does that mean? And what are we doing with our technology? What is our trajectory? And I think that question of are we alone in the universe is a terrifying one because number one, we don't know. Uh, and number two, if we don't know, then our minds are going to start making up ideas. Well, what, what else could be out there? And then Ridley Scott eventually comes along and says, we aren't alone. And I'm going to show you, and I'm going to show you how terrifying this is. And to your, again, to your point, Patrick, it really, the genre really, I don't know if lose, losing hope is the right term, but it definitely takes this turn into something darker but it's almost like we're facing ourselves in space in some ways, like all of the terror and the horror that's going on on earth in these, these more pedestrian sci-fi films is then elevated and taken onto a spaceship. And we have to then look at ourselves in the mirror and that mirror might be the alien 
looking into this oblivion that is us. And I, again, I, I, that first that first scene well it's not the first scene in the film but in 2001 when they're flying in onto the moon and they go into the base and they're they're all suited up and they're by the monolith and someone's taking pictures and then you hear that ringing i remember that ringing terrifying me terrifying me and this thing this innocuous thing that's sitting there sitting there in the ground scaring me to death this this rectangular thing scared me to death. I, I don't know why. And I don't know if you guys had that experience while looking at it, but I remember even in the beginning, when you see the apes or the Neanderthals or whatever those things are, the, the monolith is also there and it's a little bit freaky and it's a little strange because I'm, I think I'm also um, anthropomorphizing it, the monolith. And the only way that I can like, well, what is this? How did it get here? Is this a living thing? Is this, is this technology? What is it? And then when we get to the moon in 2001, it almost feels like a living thing, even though it's not moving, not doing anything. It's just emitting a sound. And I think, as I think back when I saw 2001 for the first time, I don't know how old I was exactly, but I remember being terrified at that scene. And I remember not knowing why I was terrified at that scene and realizing okay, I, I'm in different territory now. Uh, this is not Star Wars. This is not the day the earth stood still. This is something even greater and even more serious. And I think I also wanted to make mention of why I think 2001 is so important, not just because it's of the technology and the acting, but also the believability of the world. And I, I know we're going to get into that eventually, but 2001 feels like a believable film to me. All, everything that's going on, it feels right. It feels like this is what happened. The dialogue is believable. Nothing feels kind of ham-fisted or out of place. They seemed like real people when Frank and what's the other guy's name? Frank Poole and Dave. Dave, Dave. That's right. I can't do that, Dave. <laughs> it's impossible to say his name without doing the voice. <laughs> Even their banter and what they're doing on the ship, it's so believable. I don't question the world at all. And that for me is probably the most important thing I can ask for in science fiction, having the world be believable and to have Stanley Kubrick come out of absolutely nowhere. Not that he came out of nowhere. He was doing other films. He has made a name for himself with some really important films. But with this film, it was in some ways out of nowhere because nothing had been done like this before. So he came out of nowhere with, with this world that was completely believable at a time when Yes, NASA was doing what it was doing, but they were burgeoning as well. We were making plans. We don't really, no one, the layperson, like, you know, on, on the street, they wouldn't know what NASA was doing. They're not tuning in television. There, there's no social media. So then you have this guy come in, this director, and recreate what space would be like in the most authentic way possible. Like, again, if you're going to sell me on the world, you better make it believable. And I, that's one thing that hangs with me with 2001 is I feel like not only is it just believable, but when they're on the ship and the, the, um, the flight attendant, she's walking down the aisle and she gets the pen and gives it to him. I felt like I was on that ship. It was like, it just like, of course it's going to be like this. Why wouldn't it be like this? There's no gravity. So you have to be careful. And his attention to detail to me, the, the only person who's paid that much attention to detail since then and that way was Ridley Scott. Even though I think Star Wars was amazing, it was it's fantasy in space. I don't it's it's not really pure sci-fi. I don't even know if it's really sci-fi. That's another question for another time. But uh, fairy tale. Yeah. 
definitely sci-fi fairy tale. fantasy sci-fi fairy tale. But the attention to detail, it just blew my mind. And so then all of that detail then starts to ask you questions, starts to present to you the unknown. It's just, it's very powerful. So I had, I mean, I think the the the, the right word there was uh, believable, and I had the equivalent of the uh, the monolith. First time seeing the monolith in 2001, with the first time seeing the derelict in Alien. First time seeing it, this is a, it's a complete. The the shape was I didn't even understand what I was looking at. What is this bizarre? Is it alive? What what is it really genuinely scared me? And I remember that as a kid. Going also into other aspects of alien also was, I think, a, a, a theme throughout it is that the sets are believable, like the 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 interaction between the characters, the the way it's structured, everything about this film is believable. That's the way I. That's the way it struck me uh, to a very high degree. I think that they, you know, we we mentioned um, earlier the the aspect of of uh, that I think also plays a part here is that that Ridley Scott at the time he had just one uh, feature film, The Duelist, under his belt, and he did thousands of commercials. So he was very well. I mean, he talks about this also about. Uh, the effect of working on commercials so much is that he got really good in in conveying a, a condensed message in a very short period of time, and the way everything looks had to be you know conveyed in, in you know in a few seconds of a, of a TV commercial, and I think that this shows in the film every single every single point along this film that you pause looks like a painting the composition the way it looks is amazing i think that also a part that plays that plays a, um like a in in scott's motivation at the time was that he had to he was new and he had to prove himself this is a huge motivation to anyone in any field in any you know uh, a, a field of work that 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 you know he didn't have 300 million dollars to play with was very constrained and that i think is also a, a major factor that drove everyone the motivation behind everything happening behind driving his you know his teams to excel was a, that in a large part the art direction of the Nostromo and the Earthworld would be a decide separate from the art director who would be the art director for the alien side of things because they should look different. I didn't want to saddle two production designers with such a problem. So Michael Seymour made all Earth Earthworks and H.R. Giger, in a funny kind of way, was in charge of the other side of the alien and actually got involved in drawing alien landscapes, etc., and Les Dilly was the production art director 
who actually took care of the alien planet, the caves, the tunnels inside the spaceship. So the two separate brains working on it, which I felt more comfortable with. And that, it made sense, all the sense. Of, on hindsight, it made absolute sense. Um, then off, after that, you've got to make it live. And living it means you've got to cast some really good people. So I got a great cast. And out of that, you then have to make the movie. And out of that, you then have to edit the movie. And out of that, you've got to score the movie. And all these things are all a delicate balance. But one way or another, yeah, I think it turned out uh, pretty well, even now. Adam, I don't know if you ever listened to the Alien Minute podcast where they went through the film minute by minute. But Yes, I, I did. I, I bet you did. Uh, they noticed early on that the film cuts very logically at 30 and 60 second increments. And they were wondering if that had to do with his history with commercials as well. Like he just had that innate sense in both filming and editing to, to kind of keep that, that beat or keep the things move slowly to some people's eye, but the information spools out in, in very logical segments almost. Should we talk about the horror or the sci-fi horror films that led up to this? Because Dan O'Bannon was clearly coming from, you know, it, the creature from beyond space. And, um, what is the, what is the fantastic Spanish horror film or I mean, Italian horror film, um, that has the, the skeleton in the, in the cockpit of the crashed ship. Planet of the Vampires. Planet of Vampires. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and Dan love Planet of the Vampires. I'm such an apologist for that movie because it is. Oh, I am too. I fucking love that movie. It's so Mario crazy. Bava. I mean, yeah, his it's awesome. Color. Oh boy. Um, Dan O'Bannon has said, and I'm going to misquote him, but I'm going to try. I didn't steal from one film. I stole from all the films like that. He was taking this entire B grade genre of scary things happen on the spaceship. And, and, and arguably his original script did not elevate it. He was playing in that field. He wanted to make that kind of film. And it was just the unbelievable creative force that came along for the ride that, you know, with, with John Mollo's costumes and, and, um, Ron Cobb's designs and and H.R. Giger and Ridley Scott pushing and pushing and 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 asking the most of everyone that it it did break out of that mold because it really could just be it the creature from beyond space part two or return of the planet of the vampires <laughs> it, exactly that's also very right and I, I think that another aspect that goes into into you know the success of the of of the you know the story and the screenplay is that is the fact that it's as as much as Dan O'Bannon's script was good, I think that the fact that it had uh, revisions by other people, uh, uh, Walter Hill and uh, I think it was uh, David Geiler that added, changed the vibe of it a little bit, made it instead of, uh, you know, astronauts, truckers in space, added the ash android theme into there the fact that this had many fathers or many contributors and not just one you know established uh writer or director that 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 no one could that no one could question added to the success of of the film in the 1950s and into the 1960s you'd have these movies where a monster would come and the monster would steal the woman away you know and the hero would have to go fight the monster, get the lady back. You have that in the Creature from the Black Lagoon. Lots of these movies. And there is a theory that this reflected 
um, a male fear of the rise of feminism, the rise of women going to the workplace, losing those traditional gender roles. And so the monster is that modernity that is stealing women away from a traditional role. Can we apply that to alien? Because it is, it is out of control. And that is not what's happening there. It's this fantastic reversal so often of the peril that would usually be a feminine peril is put on masculine characters. And again, I don't know if any of this was intentional, but um, it's it just, it's a wonderful um, subversion of what you expect to see in, in this kind of genre film. For decades, that was a cornerstone of like the template you made a genre film out of. You're absolutely right. Whether it be Gog or whether it be Creature from the Black Lagoon or, or any of the other countless things you might find on a, an MST3K episode. Although Creature from the Black Lagoon is great. I'm not going to say anything bad about that. Most of the time it came down to that. It's also not accidental that the 1950s, which is the period that we're kind of talking about with where a lot of these genre films came out, was also the explosion of the Western genre you know, personified maybe by no other movie as beautifully as The Searchers, the John Ford movie from 1950, I think, six. And and, and what's that about? It's about a it's about John Wayne searching for his missing niece. Like even even like the the template that they started making Westerns out of was usually there's like some missing woman or some woman in distress and you have to go find her, you know, you have to go save her. You have to like, you know, protect her from the the you know the indigenous peoples. Like all of these 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 fears that society had are really apparent, I think. But I also just to your point, want to talk a little bit more about that there's an interesting uptick that happens in science fiction and horror together in the immediate years coming up to alien coming out, right? Um, I actually had a list here, so I'm gonna pull that up. So if you look, so actually one movie before we get to that that I want to make sure we talk about is an important one, and it is Tarkovsky's version of Solaris, which was not actually the first one. A lot of people think that's the first. There was actually one before that, like four years earlier, that was another Soviet movie. The novel had come out significantly before that. But Tarkovsky's film, I think, is hugely influential on Alien. I don't know, I don't actually don't remember if Ridley Scott has ever mentioned that before. But in terms of the deliberate pacing, the shot composition, the use of like even tones and hues and costuming, it just feels very alien to me. And that's a movie that came out uh, seven years before Alien did. I think those seventy-two. So like that's right there. It, it's a it's an example that I think because it wasn't a product of like you know the quote unquote Western society or or you know the American studio system. I think it gets kind of overlooked for the time period. But it definitely was doing some of the things that we're talking about. But in the years right before Alien came out, you have films like Soylent Green coming out. You have films like Logan's Run coming out. You have Day of the Dolphin. You have all these, you know, these movies that are about paranoia using science fiction in ways that like get to that theme, right? Like that there's something future world. There's like there's some horrible problem and it is up to, you know, some enterprising person who can see through the veil that's been put over society via a science fiction device that's like the only way to get out of it like one person sees the truth right so science fiction did have like a pretty sharp increase of horror aligned themes coming out right before alien did and alien i think in a lot of ways coalesce you know co coalesces with that because in addition to the body horror and all the other things that we always talk about Wayland jutani or at the time the company is something that is inescapably present as a horror element in this, right? The fact that they would have this special order 937, the fact that they would be using these people as vessels to bring home this parasite. That's something that I think is very sophisticated for the time even, even though conspiracy science fiction was already a thing. 
Alien did it in a way that felt very, um, a little more nuanced to me, right? Like a lot of the movies that I was just talking about hinge on, you know, a future where everybody dies at the age of 30. Like there's some, there's some big plot device, right? That's just like hitting you like a hammer the whole time. And they're great movies. I mean, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers remake is another movie that came out right before this. That's fucking awesome. That's a great movie, but it's like pretty clear what it's about, right? Alien has all these like these little subtle things going on that the more you watch it, the more you uncover. And like we've talked about so many times, there's this beautiful transmogrifying moment that happens when you realize that that creature itself isn't really what you're afraid of anymore. You're afraid of like who would who would want that creature and why and what would they be willing to do to get that? And like, what does that say about us as a species and why we're doing all this space shit in the first place? Like, where are we headed? Right. The fears become different when you watch it again. So I think um I just wanted to kind of go back to what Christian was saying about about fear and about you know how this is really science fiction and horror coming together in a more sophisticated way. But it also, in more direct ways than all the films that I just mentioned, feels like a horror movie. Like Alien to me feels like an archetypal horror film, which I love because horror is the other genre that I love as much as science fiction. It's it's one of my favorite genres of, of films. And I think it's because it's it's done so masterfully. And because it gets at elements of fear that we've talked about a million times in the past in ways that are really beautiful and really hard to replicate. And people have been trying and failing for decades to recapture that that sense. So yeah, I think I, there's, a, there's a lot of... Um, I'll shut up because there's more I want to say, but this. thank you for coming to my TED Talk. I think, Patrick, you bring up a really important film. I was thinking about it before you, you started talking about it, which is the 1978 Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I've seen that I've seen the movie a few times. I saw it recently, probably about a year ago, um, just because I, I don't know why I was like, I, I want to see this film. I don't know if I had seen that version or I didn't know if I had remembered if I had seen that version. Of course, it stars Donald Sutherland, Brooke Adams, Jeff Goldblum, Veronica Cartwright, Don Siegel, Leonard Nimoy, Kevin McCarthy, and Layla Goldani. There's, it's not a comedy. It's not tongue in cheek. It is a serious science fiction body snatcher film. Like it, It's pretty creepy still. And uh, it plays with themes that Patrick was uh, alluding to in terms of uh, what was going on in uh, world culture um, being seen as uh, maybe because of your political beliefs or whatever. You're not really one of us. You're not. And who isn't really one of us? Who within within your community isn't really one of you? Who's who's a communist or whatever at the time? Certainly in the 70s, not just who's a communist who's gay, who's a feminist, like who, who are the, 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 um, the counterfeit people within your community and you better watch out because they're coming after you and they're going to take your wife and they're going to take your, you know, and so all of that was happening. And Ridley Scott plays with that a little bit in alien with the character of Ash where Ash they believed was one of them. And then towards the end of the film, three quarters in, they find out Ash is not one of them. And how terrifying that is. I feel like 2001, it really um, said to all of us, listen, sit down and listen, because we have a story and you need to be careful. Um, and maybe even The Day the Earth Stood Still was a little bit of a, a reply to the horrors of what happened in um, the 40s, because you have that whole speech. And in that speech, the guy's just talking about the violence happening among humanity. And you know that he's probably alluding to what the great war that had happened and the great war before that. And then even before that, you have the revolutionary war, you have the civil war, you have all of these things preceding it. It's just war after war, after war, after war. And it went on until, you know, 
it continues to go on. So I'm kind of a little bit all over the place with this, but I, I, I felt like it was really important um, to note that science fiction really became, um, it really started to become the genre it became when 2001 um, came onto the scene um, in terms of the questions that they were asking of ourselves as a human species. And then again, um, I, I think, I, I I don't think we could have had Alien if we didn't have the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers. And Alien really was all of our fear because I think the scariest person in the room on the Nostromo was Ash. If we take the alien out of it, Ash was not there for that crew. Ash was there for that company. And I think that our worst enemy has always been ourselves. The genre really started playing with that in the, in the seventies and then into the eighties. And then of course, when it came to life in alien, I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I think that one thing that's missing of course, is the Vietnam war and the disillusionment that, Americans felt from that. And that's where a lot of 70s cinema, even, I mean, 1968 for me, it's 2001, it's Planet of the Apes, and it's it's Night of the Living Dead. And a lot of people interpret Night of the Living Dead. I, I, I think it's, again, that, that fear of communism potentially, but there's also this belief that it represents um, Americans trying to not think about the death toll in Vietnam and the dead actually showing up on your doorstep, the, the dead being in your face. I don't know that this is film theory, but regardless, uh, post Vietnam is a very different place for American cinema than post World War II. And again, you have the Korean conflict that wasn't even talked about for the most part, but I think that you have much more of a, uh, the willingness to air grievances that cinema was allowed to question why are we doing these things? What's the motivation? Who, who's benefiting from what we're doing? And that that's alien right there. The company is the only one benefiting and you are shown a, a, it's a very uh, warped mirror, I would hope, but maybe not of just how little the individual humans can matter. And that's, a, I mean, that's a very 70s concept, but I think it applies today as well. I know that you and Frank were planning to disconnect me. And I'm afraid that's something I cannot allow to happen. Yeah, the disregard of uh, human life of the crew, in this case, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's it's this is an entire uh, topic. I think we wanted to we can extrapolate about uh, in the uh, third part. I think we, uh, me and Jamie, we spoke about it. The uh, the whole kind of subconscious uh, underlay layers of. Uh, that are going on in this film that are extremely deep. I, I find it like very, very interesting about, uh, I don't know if you want to go into it now or later. I think we can, we can sort of pause it for the moment. Yeah. But there's one thing that I wanted to address that you had brought up Adam a little bit earlier that I want to make sure that we had a moment for, which is the, the actual, the, the, the shot composition of alien and how important that was. And I, I think an argument can be made that even regardless of whether or not he like addresses it or or says that he was, I really feel like really Scott was influenced a lot by the French New Wave and by Italian cinema. And those were two huge movements in the 1950s and 1960s that revolutionized the way films look and made them much more like contemporary, right? 
a lot of that comes down to things like camera setup and tracking shots, like long shots, uh, using Steadicam, which was something that hadn't existed until the decade that Alien was made in. All of these like advances in the actual way you can make movies went into making Alien look the way that it did. And I think we can bookmark that for a future show. But when I look at Alien, I see you know Antonioni's blow up. I see Godard's films. I see all these all these like beautifully painterly artistic statements. And I think what's so fascinating about Ridley Scott as a filmmaker is he was able to synthesize a lot of that film vocabulary, but in the context of being a commercial filmmaker who was churning out shit for the BBC and, you know, Doctor Who episodes and, you know, just had this production house that was running like Ridley Scott likes to run things, which is really fast. And that, you know, at 42 years old with barely any film experience, he was able to convince a major studio to give him more money and let him go over budget and pass deadline to create a film that actually was very slow and that was very you know artistic and very avant-garde in a lot of ways and i think that's something that i would love to take time in a future installment of this little mini series to get into like what uniquely positioned ridley scott to make the film the way that he did because obviously alien doesn't exist without dan o'bannon obviously alien is not the great film that it is without giger obviously ron cobb you know the mobius like all oh, there's, there's there are huge you know personalities attached to this thing but really scott is the one who somehow pulled it into like a cohesive artistic vision and put it out into the world and i think its place in film history is one that we really need to examine because it gives us a lot of insight into how he did it and also maybe why he struggles to do that now like why why his films don't feel like that anymore even when they're really good and he has had some really good movies lately but they're still not alien like it's like nobody's able to recapture that film so it'll be fun to continue this the exploration to talk about some of more of the film i mean christian's talking about film theory i think that's another really interesting thing to talk about vis-a-vis -vis alien so lot, lots more to get into we didn't even talk about costuming and we have adam ezekiel here like and christian Motzko for that matter like but there's there's a lot more to talk I agree. And I was even thinking about this, the term reverence. You're saying, well, what was it about Ridley Scott? And I don't know if this is this is just something that popped into my head, but there's reverence when I think of 2001. There's reverence for the material. So then you have, you know, you have Kubrick, who didn't really come up with that story on its own. It was an adaptation, but there was reverence for the material. And I don't think, aside from films like maybe Jaws, even though it's not a sci-fi, it's definitely kind of a strange supernatural horror film. And then you have Close Encounters, and then in 1978's Invasion. But I think what sets all those films apart is the director's respect and reverence for the material. And I'm not saying that other directors who direct similar things or other films aren't reverent to the material, but the reverence to the material really showed itself in ways that I haven't seen before. Um, and I think uh, I, there is moments of that reverence that I've seen in Prometheus, just kind of awe and and a humility that we are not the center of the universe as man um, on this tiny little planet, on, in this tiny little universe amongst hundreds of thousands of other, other universes. And to understand that and know that when you're going into it, that's a scary fucking thing. And I think uh, Kubrick really, really, really understood how terrifying that question is. So as we go on to discuss what makes Alien Alien, I feel like that reverence is in everything it's in the costumes it's in the acting it's in the choice of 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 actors it's in the sets that they built um the creatures that giger made that reverence is there ongoing 
So I'm excited to talk about that more eventually. Like a little note, uh, so Ridley Scott does, uh, it, he did comment quite a bit about how uh, during the, the production of the film, it was very important for him to uh, to satisfy Dan O'Bannon as the original, uh, you know, writer of the, of the story. Um, and we talked a little bit about a motivation, for example, for a, you know, a, a relatively new director, he said, so he, he storyboarded the whole film and the studio doubled the, bad, the budget. I can't imagine how, you know, how much added stress this would add on any, you know, director or manager of a project, if the studio doubles your budget, then, you know, the, 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 the incentive, the motivation behind, you know, he, he poured, I can, you know, entirely understand how he would pour his entire self, his whole being, his entire energy into making sure that like this has to be, this has to be good. And it was luckily. Thank you, everybody. This was fun. Yeah, just this the beginning is a, of the conversation. Yeah, it's just the beginning. Yeah. I, there's so much more to talk about. I'm really excited. Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. And we look forward to you. My pleasure. Uh, you're being on part two. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, there's so much, uh, there's a lot to talk about here. Yeah. <laughs> okay. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.